thank you very, very much for having me. And we're just going to do a little technical switch over here. All right, good morning. So thank you very, very much for having me. Um, really appreciate being invited to speak at this occasion and especially to kick off the new season. Um, this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, my background before I get started is I'm an emergency room physician. I've worked in the Toronto area for almost 15 years. And the intersection of technology and healthcare delivery is something that's always been on my mind. And starting Maple was something that really brought those two interests together. And so many of the pressing problems that we see in our community are things that we felt that we could solve through creating platforms that create better access to healthcare through better use of technology. So without further ado, I'll just jump right in. Uh, we called our presentation the Unclosable Hospital. And before I get into the specifics of the actual hospital, because there is an actual hospital that is unclosable, I want to tell you just a little bit more about Maple, why we started Maple, what led to Maple being started, and what we've done so far before we got to this particular hospital that we want to talk to you about today. So this is the case study um, in the United States that was one of the things that started our interest. And the reason why I put it up as the first slide is this particular case study was perhaps one of the most important factors in the genesis of creating Maple. It was seeing what was happening down in the United States at places like Kaiser that really sparked our interest to say virtual care works, virtual care is effective, and virtual care really is something that we should think about bringing more of to Canada. Now, not to say it wasn't happening here. There was virtual care happening, but nothing even close to the levels of what we were seeing down in the US. So if you looked at Kaiser, um, back in 2015 when we started Maple, so we started just over three years ago, um, Kaiser was doing a little bit less than this, but in 2017, Kaiser's 10 million patients, they did 13 million virtual visits. So uh, if you think about this, this is a hospital system whose number of patients is pretty similar to what we see for the entire province of Ontario. So an absolutely huge hospital system dwarfs almost anything that we have in Canada, one of the largest in the world. And their virtual visit volumes were increasing in double digits uh, in terms of percentages every single year. And there were some claims made by their CEO that they were actually going to be performing more virtual visits by the end of 2017 than they were actually doing in-person visits. And they were doing a lot of different kinds of virtual visits. But what was really cool was how all of these different virtual programs worked together and seamlessly integrated with what they were delivering physically in the hospital. So they had an incredible teledermatology program all the way across the network. They were doing things like on-site specialty consultations. So, you know, things like what we do with OTN, but happening almost on the moment when it was needed. Urgent care visits, anything that was deemed not life-threatening, their patients across the network could see a doctor virtually in minutes, 24 hours a day across the entire network. Uh, even routine follow-up and specialist visits, they were giving all of their patients the choice of, do you want to see a doctor in clinic, or do you actually want to see a doctor by video, or by telephone, or by instant message chat where appropriate. And all of these worked together, all of these had a shared record. So when you had the video visit, there was a record created. And when you went into the clinic two weeks later, the clinic doctor could see the video visit record. When you had a hospital stay, the clinic doctor could see your hospital stay records. Everything integrated beautifully. And this was something that I looked down at and we at Maple looked down at and said, wow, isn't there a way that we could create something like that up here? And obviously, I think a lot of people have tried. Um, not an easy thing to get to, but we thought, you know, taking baby steps and starting with some core services would be the way to go. So at the same time, when we looked around at what was happening in Canada when we started Maple a few years ago, uh, compared to Kaiser's 13 million visits, only about 0.25% of Canada's doctor visits were virtual back in 2015. So there were certainly some 
fantastic efforts being made. OTN was doing wonderful work. Uh, but despite all of what OTN was doing, that was only a few hundred thousand visits, which was really a drop in the bucket compared to the hundreds of millions of doctor visits that we were seeing in Canada across the country at that point in time. And at the same point in time, you know, I talked about Kaiser Permanente, um, there were lots of other players that had emerged in the United States at the same time. So not just hospital systems, but, you know, we saw all these giants. We saw companies like um, Teladoc and Doctor on Demand and American Well and MD Live. Um, in the United Kingdom, we were seeing similar things. We saw virtual just exploding. So we saw companies like Babylon Health. We saw companies like Push Doctor. So this is not just an American phenomenon, it's around the world. And at the same time, you know, we didn't list them all, but there's examples from Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand. There was no question that telemedicine, video visits, virtual care, that this was potentially the way of the future based on what we were seeing everywhere else. But just for whatever reason, it wasn't penetrating into Canada. So this was the challenge that we really wanted to make a dent in. Um, it's grown tremendously. If you look at some of the projections on the right side, the latest projections show that, that the global telemedicine market will be as large as almost $100 billion by the mid-2020s. I've seen some projections that are actually twice as large as this. Every projection we see seems to be bigger than the last one. Um, in the United States, the adoption, so we talked about Kaiser potentially doing more visits virtually than in person, but in the United States, the adoption is just tremendous. So the latest surveys show that about 80% of US physicians are actually including telemedicine or virtual care in their practice. The, in Canada, a very small minority of physicians even know much about virtual care, even know that it works, have ever thought to offer this. Similarly, in the United States, uh, compared to what we see, which is this 0.25% number, in the United States, about 20% of all American surveys said they have had at least one virtual care excuse me, virtual care visit. So the tremendous penetration down there is something impressive. There's been huge progression. And in Canada, we've seen a number of players. So Maple has emerged. We've had other private players emerge. We see this marketplace starting to, to develop, very much following these trends of what we've seen elsewhere in the world. So the big question is, why does this matter? You know, why do we even care? Uh, is there a problem that we're trying to solve? And so the other side of the equation of what drove us to say, we should try to make a difference, and we should try to do something differently from the way it's been done before, is that there is a crisis in access to care in our country. And I don't think any of these numbers are a surprise to anybody who works in the Canadian healthcare system. So if you follow the Commonwealth Fund studies, which come out every couple of years to look at the relative performance of different healthcare systems, routinely we're about the last ranked or the second last ranked in terms of access to care. So usually in access to care, we're actually pretty much the last ranked. So when you look at the stats, uh, about 15% of Canadians don't even have a family doctor. And of those Canadians that do have a family doctor, less than 50% of them are actually able to access care today or tomorrow, even when they're sick. The stat even gets worse when we look at, um, you know, if we try to extrapolate that out. So the stats actually show that about one third of Canadians are waiting more than seven days to see their family doctor, even when they're sick. I think we all know that that's not good enough. And so what that causes, um, and you see the stat there that about two-thirds of Canadians report that they would have to go to an emergency room to get care on evenings or weekends. But what that causes is a stat that I think also rings true to most people who work in hospitals, and certainly as an emergency room doctor rings true to me, which is that 47% uh, of Canadians who are going to the emergency room admit that they're not going to the emergency room because they have an emergency problem. They, they say that they're going to the emergency room because they have nowhere else to go. And this is a big problem because, as we all know, the emergency room is one of the most expensive places to provide primary care. We should be providing other channels of care for these patients that are less expensive. From a societal perspective, from a responsible use of funds perspective, it's just the right choice. So we looked at this crisis in access to care, and some of the headlines there talk about hospitals closing, 
talk about uh, what's happening in rural communities like Northern Ontario, uh, a lot of these wait times apply to even urban settings. So this is a crisis and it continues to grow. Now, one of the things we always hear about is that our crisis in access to care is because we don't have enough doctors. And, and this is something that I've heard over and over again um, from many, many people that bringing in something like Maple or bringing in virtual care isn't gonna fix anything because we just don't have enough doctors. And if we put doctors on virtual care, well, guess what? They're just not gonna work in the clinic. And so this is something that we've worked really hard to debunk. So we certainly do have a relative shortage of physicians. So if you look at the OECD average, which is 3.4 physicians uh, per 1,000 population, we're definitely less, we're 2.7. But that being said, we are making strides towards fixing that. So physician growth in Canada is incredibly strong. It's outpacing population growth. Uh, we've seen um, incredible growth between the year 2012 and 2016. 2016 saw Canada having more physicians than at any time in history, so we're going in the right direction. But what is particularly interesting um, when we look at these numbers is that number one, rural communities in Canada are incredibly underserved relative to urban communities. So. 17% of Canadians live in rural areas, but only about 8% of Canadian doctors actually are practicing in those areas. So they're massively underserved. And what we do see is that the supply of physicians, in, especially in urban areas, is leading to a fair amount, and it's not the only factor, but it's one of the factors that contributes to a fair amount of overcapacity of physicians or excess capacity of physicians. So, you know, everybody says all doctors are working full time, we don't have enough doctors, but when you actually look at the Statistics Canada numbers, so when you look at the total number of doctors across Canada, and then you look at the total number of doctors across Canada that actually report working full year or full time, what was really interesting to us when we got started was that only about 40% of physicians, and this isn't primary care, this isn't specialty care, this is primary care and specialty care, so all physicians, um, only 40% of physicians are actually working full year or full time. And so we ask physicians all the time, we deal with tons of physicians at Maple, we always ask why aren't you working full year? And every doctor has a different answer. So. It may be that you know they just don't have the physical infrastructure. It may be that, like me, they're an emergency room doctor, and you know they just burn out. They work 14 shifts per month, and after 14 shifts per month, the thought of doing another shift is just something that they can't handle. And most of the physicians that come to Maple, you know, they have this excess capacity, and they say, "I would love to provide more healthcare, but the existing system just doesn't provide me. It doesn't give me the physical infrastructure. It doesn't give me something that's flexible. It doesn't give me something that works for me." So. One of our goals was to say, could we create a workplace that would allow all of that excess capacity in the system to actually be used to address this big crisis in access to care that we have? So um, we have a vision and philosophy at Maple. And without reading right off the slide, uh, I'm going to boil it down to a couple things. So number one, we believe that in the future, digital is going to be the majority of the way that we interact with patients. So this has happened in every other industry. So you bank online. You shop online, you book your travel online, almost everything you do in your life, you do online. You access it through your smartphone. And we're starting to see a trend in which this is, go this is something that's gonna be adopted in healthcare too. There's no question that outside of things where we need interventional physical examination or we need a procedure done, there's no question that most of what we do in healthcare can be done virtually. Provided the right supports are in place where the physicians can see the patient's background records, can see their reports, can order tests, can do all of the things that they would do in their office, why do we need to do a visit uh, in the office? Why do we need to make somebody travel across town? 
Why do we need to make the 70-year-old woman who's getting a prescription renewal for her blood pressure medication sit for three hours in a waiting room next to the guy with the flu to get that prescription renewal? From a convenience perspective, from a cost perspective, and from an infection control perspective, it makes no sense to force everybody into physical channels of care. So that's one of our fundamental beliefs. The other fundamental belief we have is that patients should own their records and they should control where they get their care. So we don't believe in forcing patients to go somewhere where they don't want to go. So uh, a patient that says, you know, I really do want to go to the clinic. I don't want to do virtual. We should never be forcing them. And vice versa, when a patient says, I want to be able to have a virtual care visit, our system shouldn't say, well, sorry, you have to do a physical visit because it's just not covered if you do virtual. So we want to provide choice in where you get your care. We want to provide ownership of the patient record. And we want to allow patients to share those records with any other healthcare provider they want. Those are our fundamental beliefs. So we started to build a system at Maple that encompasses those beliefs. And it's something that we hope that we can really expand over time. So. Oh, I'll just go up again. So what has Maple achieved since we started? And I'm going to get to the actual unclosable hospital soon. Um, but Maple right now is Canada's only 24-hour day, uh, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year virtual care platform that operates on a national basis. So we have never shut down. We first started providing clinical care in uh, late 2016, and since then we've had no downtime. There's been no time the platform didn't operate. Um, we have always been available. And so... Our patients, when they log on to the system, no matter what time of day, if it's 2 in the morning, if it's Christmas Day, New Year's Day, they always get a doctor. Uh, our average wait time for our patients to see a doctor, last time I checked and we have live metrics of this all the time, is about 1.35 minutes. So almost instantaneous care on the platform for primary care. Uh, we've recently added features like specialist referrals and laboratory testing built in on the platforms that we can actually actually action out some of the follow-up items that many of our patients require for care. We've built a comprehensive integrated care model with comprehensive online health records so patients can store things like their immunizations, their medications, all of their previous visits from multiple types of providers can go on there. Um, you know, I can't tell you as an emergency room doctor how frustrating it is, how many times I see patients that walk in the door and they can't tell me when their last tetanus shot was, they can't tell me what their six heart medications are. So Maple patients don't have that problem because all of that is on their application, it's in their profile. And when they show up in the emergency room, they just open up their Maple app and they can show it to the doctor. Um, one of the things that we're really proud of is patient satisfaction. So we believe in great experiences for our patients, and that's one of our guiding principles as well. So at the end of every single Maple visit, our patients rate their experience out of five stars, uh, just like you do on Uber, just like you do on Airbnb. And so, so far we've had 98% of our patients rate our experience as five out of five stars. Um, and that's pretty phenomenal. You know, I think in emergency care, you know, I've looked at patient care satisfactions and often our satisfaction ratings, at least in my emergency room, are in the mid-60s. On a good day, they go a little bit higher. So 98% in healthcare is pretty good and something that we're very proud of. And we have about 200 doctors working on the network from across the country. We're providing service across the entire country. And all of what you see here is available across the entire country. And then the final things are we can prescribe medication digitally. We can deliver across the country nationally in one business day. So even patients that are in remote areas where there may not even be a pharmacy nearby, uh, if they have a prescription that's ordered for them on Maple, that prescription can be delivered to wherever they are within one business day. So really comprehensive care, primary care in minutes across the country. Um, so this is just where we are in some of our roadmaps. So I've just spoken about our virtual on-demand primary care. So one of the other things just to add on is we actually recently expanded to the United States. So not only do we provide service across Canada with Canadian doctors, we actually offer service in New York State, Florida, and California with local U.S. doctors as well. And we are planning to expand further across the United States. The, the other thing that we recently added on 
Uh, and this was in response to our patients' cries for more help in mental health. So we always hear that there's a crisis in mental health care in Canada. Uh, we hear it from our patients at Maple. I've heard it from my patients in the emergency room that when people are in a time of crisis, there is nobody for them to speak to. It's very hard to find help. So we implemented uh, the country's first on-demand uh, telepsychotherapy service. So basically seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., 12 hours a day, the same way that people can access a doctor in minutes, people can log on, ask to see a psychotherapist, and they can get matched to a psychotherapist in a matter of minutes for on-demand psychotherapy, mental health care. And we've been helping a ton of people so far, and that's an experience that we expect to see expand dramatically over the coming years. And then we're actually adding virtual specialist care on. So we're already hosting certain specialists, individual clinics. There's an orthopedic surgery fracture clinic that we host on our service. We're looking to add on other specialist clinics as well. The idea being eventually that care of any type should be on this Maple platform. And then the nice thing about having all of these types of care on one platform is all of the records are shared. So you have your primary care records, your specialist care records, your mental health records, everything in one platform that you can easily carry with you everywhere in a smartphone app to show to anybody else anywhere you go. So this brings me to the actual main topic of today's talk, which is the unclosable hospital. So um, the hospital that we're talking about here um, is in a place called Alberton PEI. So Alberton is a tiny, tiny hospital uh, in the western end of Prince Edward Island. So Alberton has a population of 1,149 people in 2016, and it is a hospital that has 27 inpatient beds, so 25 medicine, two palliative care beds. Uh, they take care not only of the residents of the town, uh, they also take care of the surrounding community, uh, so they do actually serve a larger community than just that tiny little town. One of the things that's really of note with this hospital is they have 50 full-time employees in this hospital. So if you think about it, in a town of 1,149 people, 50 employees, and, and this is one of the things when we think about hospital closures, what we don't think about is the job losses. So, you know, we always think about, you know, what, what an awful thing for the community, and it is awful when they lose their place of care, but all of the jobs that are lost when a local hospital closes because it can't staff itself, that's a tragedy for a small community. So 50 jobs in a community of this size, this is one of the single largest employers in that community, would have been a big tragedy. So for years, this hospital, Western Hospital and PEI, struggled. Uh, they were doing everything in their power to get locums to, to actually cover their inpatient wards. And eventually, after trying to attract new physicians, burning out their existing physicians on the ground in PEI, they were faced with a final decision that, that they couldn't avoid any longer, which was that the hospital just couldn't be kept open. They weren't able to staff it. And so uh, Health PEI, which is their Ministry of Health in Prince Edward Island, and the hospital administrators sat down and agreed that if they could not get new physicians by the summer of 2018, this hospital was going to close. So 50 jobs were going to be lost and the community and its surrounding area would have no hospital. So this is a story that I think has played out countless times across Canada. I think we've seen the headlines. And usually the story ends with the next step is taken and guess what, the hospital closes. And you know we read about it in the papers and we say, how do we avoid it next time? So the good news is Albert and PEI didn't want to go down this path. And I hand it to the people that work at this hospital, I hand it to Health PEI, I hand it to the local administrators to say that they had the courage um, to actually say that this hospital is unclosable, to say that we are not going to let this go down. So I'll tell you the story from our perspective. So we launched um, service to the public in Prince Edward Island uh, in the spring of 2017. So we started providing primary care services and the local media got a hold of the fact that Maple was available in Prince Edward Island and there were stories that were published. And so the story that I hear is the hospital administration for the hospital administrator for the western part of PEI was driving in his car and he was going to work as with any other regular day commuting to work and he apparently couldn't sleep at night because he was so stressed over this impending hospital closure and he heard the story on CBC radio 
about Maple coming to PEI. And he said a, a light bulb went off in his head saying, wait a second, this company that is providing primary care virtually, is there a chance that maybe there could be a solution they could provide to keep our hospital open? And so I didn't know any of this was happening, but uh, in my email inbox a couple days later, I received an email and uh, the title of the email was PEI, uh, Nighthawk On-Call Staffing, which I thought was a very strange email title, but I, I opened it up and it was from a gentleman by the name of Paul Young, who is the administrator I've been speaking about, and he said, you know, we're having a crisis. We're going to close our hospital. Is there anything you can do to help? And so our answer as a scrappy young Canadian startup is always yes. We'll never say no to an opportunity. So even though we didn't have a platform to take care of hospital patients and we didn't know how we would do it, we said, of course, we can help you. And so we proceeded to have discussions. Um, I ended up flying out to PEI. I demoed our platform. I showed them what it can do, at least our primary care platform. And it was very clear among everybody there at that meeting. And the nice thing about working in a place like PEI, which is different from Ontario, is uh, the executive of the Ministry of Health, I think, is about 12 people. So I was able to have a meeting with the entire Ministry of Health in, in one meeting. It would be very, very difficult to do this here in Ontario. Um, but, but we were able to come to some consensus in one meeting with the executive to say, the hospital closing is not something that we are okay with. This is what they said. They said, it is our mandate to keep this hospital open. We're going to do whatever it takes. And so we worked together with them, and we started to say, what do we have to do to make this happen? What do we have to do from an administrative perspective, from a political perspective, from a funding perspective, from a technology perspective, from a recruiting perspective? And so there were a lot of things that had to happen. And interestingly, there were a lot of discussions. This group said yes, but this had to actually go as high as the premier of PEI. So this required some legislative changes because as many of you know, virtual care is not funded in most provinces. There are some exceptions, as we know, OTN has some exceptions in Ontario. But for the most part, in most provinces, any virtual care that's on a private network is not funded. And so eventually this got as high as the Premier of PEI. And that took about nine months from that initial meeting for it to get to the Premier's desk. And for the Premier to make the decision to say, this hospital closing is unacceptable and I'm actually going to sign off on there being an exception to our law that allows these doctors who work on this virtual platform to be paid. And so we got the go-ahead about nine months later to say, let's make this happen. At the same time, we had this large working group that was put together, 20 plus stakeholders in the community, uh, including people from Health PEI, people from the local community, staff in the hospital, who were all helping us to start to build collaboratively what the solution should be. And at the same time, we started recruiting. You know, we weren't building technology yet because we needed the go-ahead from the premier, but we started recruiting our local doctors. So we had 200 doctors across the country to recruit from, and we put out an email to our doctors to say, guys, we're looking at keeping a hospital open in PEI. Who's interested? And we were flooded with responses from our network, which was really amazing. Um, tons of our doctors thought that this was just such an interesting, innovative effort, and that it was something that they wanted to be part of. So bunch of stuff happened and we actually got the go-ahead and we built the platform. So we had three months from the time the Premier said yes to actually have a fully functioning inpatient telemedicine platform with procedures and policies pulled together to actually make this happen. So uh, not easy to do. How did we do it? So I think there's a few key learnings here that allowed us to make this happen. So first of all, I think the number one thing that allowed an effort like this to happen, that allowed this hospital to stay open, is that we had support from the highest levels of the Prince Edward Island government. So from the Premier to the Minister of Health, they threw their weight behind this. They were willing to make legislative and regulatory changes to make this happen, to understand that we needed to actually be able to bill for this, that we couldn't do this if we couldn't pay the doctors. The other important thing is that we made this cost neutral for the province. So 
what we as Maple said is we said, you know, what do you pay doctors right now for this rounding? And they said, you know, we have a budget. We pay X dollars per day for the physicians to round. And we said, you know what? We're going to provide you a solution for exactly the same amount. So we will staff it. We will build a virtual platform. And there will be no extra dollars for you. So we made the decision really easy for the government because there was no extra cost involved. They already had the budget committed. The other thing that really helped us is we had to hire people to make this happen. We hired a project manager. Um, you'll see some pictures of her pretty soon in the presentation who did wonderful work to coordinate this. We hired extra technology staff. None of this would have been, hap would have been possible without the generous assistance of both the federal and provincial government. So the federal government and the Ontario government. So we got an Ontario Centers for Excellence grant, which was incredibly helpful. We got an IRAP grant from the federal government, which is incredibly helpful. And all of those are renewing grants as we continue with this work and as we try to expand it. Both of these governments have expressed an interest to continue to help fund us with further financial support. And that has been an incredible help to both finance our technology and administrative staffing for this effort. The other thing which I think made a huge difference was that all of the staff in this hospital were on board. They recognized the need for change. And sometimes um, I think necessity is the mother of invention. And I think everybody knowing that if this didn't work, this hospital would close created the organizational motivation for everybody to pull their way to make this work. So every single element of the hospital was on board from you know infrastructure to the way the nurses worked, to the way pharmacy worked, to every part of the hospital was on board to make sure that this process was going to be successful. So. Um, we got to the point of launching. So this actually is very, very new. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is actually the first time we've ever spoken to any audience about this effort. So up until about a week ago, there was a publication ban from the PEI government. They said, don't talk to anybody about this. We want to make sure that this is actually working and people are happy. So, so we got the go ahead to talk about it here and we're happy that we can talk about it. Um, so we went through all of that effort. We got the government to approve of what we're doing. We got people to fund us. All of the hospital stakeholders were on board. Everybody was really excited. And so uh, you can see there was a crowd. And for Prince Edward Island Hospital, this is a really big crowd. Um, so, so, you know, we had all the people that, that, that were instrumental um, in making this happen on the floor. So you can see Shelly, our project manager. I don't know if you can see the Maple T-shirt on the left side on the picture on the, on the right. We had Paul, who was the administrator of Community Hospitals West. We had uh, the infrastructure and IT people from PEI, administrators from Health PEI, and from the hospital all there. And lots of excitement. And uh, we did a pre-rounding in a room where we got the system up and running, showed that we could load up all the patients, we did a nursing conference, and we're good to go. And so it's time to actually roll into the first patient room. And you can see on the left side, this is what it looks like from the nurse's perspective. So it's a cart there actually where there's the maple system on the big screen monitor. And I'll show you a little bit more about our system in a bit. And underneath is the hospital's EMR system. And all of our remote physicians have full access into the hospital's EMR system via VPN. So you know they can see the hospital records, they can order tests, they can do everything that an in-person physician would do. So they're fully connected into the hospital system during these rounds. Um, and so it's time to go into the first room. So. Uh, Dr. Bharat Ball, who's one of our doctors at Maple, who has been incredibly instrumental in helping to make this effort launch, was our first rounding doctor for the day. So Dr. Ball is an emergency room physician who also does hospital work uh, here in Toronto area. And so we roll the cart into the first room and tremendous excitement and six seconds later the cart dies. And so <laughs> not, 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 not what we were hoping for, but it turns out that the battery that was supposed to last six hours actually only lasted six seconds. So, so lots of panic in the rooms. You can see there's a big crowd of people in the hallway in the middle there trying to figure out what to do. And quickly people realize that there's a battery flaw. They swap out the battery, uh, put in the new battery, which is actually the proper battery. And now we're actually off to the races. And 
Uh, you can see again what the cart looks like. We're going from room to room with an entourage. And you know, I've done, actually, I do the rounds myself. We don't get an entourage like that anymore. But this is probably one of the biggest entourages that we've ever seen for hospital rounding in PEI. And going from room to room with this cart, actually rolling into each patient's room, with each patient getting to see Dr. Ball on the screen, with him seeing those patients, seeing their records, making notes, giving orders, doing all the things that you would ever do on hospital rounds. And what was really exciting about this was the patient reaction. So, um, we had a mix of different reactions and everybody was kind of nervous about how would the patients react to actually seeing a doctor on video. And we were worried, would they complain? Would they have negative reactions? Would they say, you know, am I not good enough to get a doctor in person? And it was really funny. We would have patients that were in advance doing their hair because they said, I'm going to be on TV. <laughs> so, so the patients were, were nervously excited, which was amazing. And, and they were all glammed up. And you know, there was one shy patient who said, I don't know if I want to be on TV. And we persuaded him to eventually go on, on board. So uh, it's actually really, really fantastic. There's one inpatient who I've seen numerous times, a uh, really, really sweet man who's been there for a long time awaiting placement. And he's always sitting in the hallway. And so every time I've done rounds, what happens is as they roll the cart down the hallway, I get a view of everything in the hallway. And so. As the cart goes down the hall, I get to see him in his chair. And every time I roll by, I see this huge smile and a wave at me as I roll by in the cart. So it's actually a, a very sweet experience. And the patients have really, really loved us. And one of the things that I like to talk about um, that's really important, and people ask about, you know, how do the patients feel at the end of this? Uh, you know, did they find that this was different? Uh, did they make comments about it being virtual? Uh, one of the things that I really notice is very quickly when you're doing these rounds, the technology disappears. Nobody notices after a few minutes that this is on a screen. Nobody notices that the doctor's not in the room. This is exactly like rounding. People notice the quality of care. They notice the questions being asked to them. They notice the good decisions that are being made. They notice the metrics of the outcomes. You know, I've done during these rounds, I've done full case conferences with families where uh, this cart gets wheeled into a side private room where I'm sitting with the family members. And we have a case conference just like I would on normal inpatient rounding that I would do in a hospital here. And the only difference is that instead of me walking in on my legs, I, I get wheeled in on two wheels. Um, actually, maybe it's four wheels. But the point is that the technology disappears. And that's what I believe all good technology should do. Technology is a means to an end. And when you notice the technology too much, the technology is not doing its job. So in this case, nobody notices the technology anymore. What they notice is good patient care. So we made it to the end of the first day. Um, we ran it on 14 patients that day. And those were 14 patients for whom, if we hadn't had the solution, they would have been somewhere else. This hospital would have been closed. Um, these jobs, all of these people that you see in these pictures, these nurses, they wouldn't have had jobs if we didn't do this. There's, there's a lot of reason for a lot of smiles. There was patient care provided that wouldn't have been available. Um, we had staff members come up to Shelley who they were almost in tears who said, thank you. Thank you so much because if this hospital had closed, I don't know what I would have done. This has been my job for life and I don't know where I would have worked. So we kept uh, one of the largest employers open. We provided health care. And you can see in the smiles that everybody's on board. And so right now we're about a month and a half into this project. And it's too early to have formal outcome data. Uh, we're waiting for the six-month mark to really do some comprehensive study, which we're starting to plan. But what I can tell you, at least from the preliminary data, is that this is working really well. So. Uh, every hospital cares about patient complaints. We've had zero patient complaints about this since we started. Hospitals care about length of stay. Length of stay has gone down since we started. Readmission rates are not going up. Uh, on, on the quality of care metrics that we're able to see so far, everything is holding steady from what we've seen before. So on, on every single metric that we've been able to measure, and again, this is only a month and a half and we have to wait, but on every single measure that matters, this is a stunning success. For no extra money, a hospital that wasn't able to stay open has stayed open and for the most part, the numbers are as good as better or better than they were before. 
So I'll tell you a little bit about the platform and how it works and what it can do. So um, these are, I don't expect you to be able to see this so well because it's not too zoomed in, but these are some of the screenshots of the platform. So um, there is a patient list that's built in. So what we do is we upload the live patient list from the floor onto our platform at all time. There's a live comprehensive patient profile for every single patient on the floor where our doctors can make live notes. They can actually write digital prescriptions at discharge. They can upload pictures. So, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot when I've provided hospital care uh, here in any physical setting is um, I see a patient with cellulitis or I see a patient with a wound and I'm relying on somebody's drawing or description of that wound from yesterday uh, or of that cellulitis from yesterday. Here we don't have to worry about that because there are digital cameras and digital files. So every single day, you know, we have patients on this floor with cellulitis. We take a picture of it every day and you can see how that wound looked yesterday and you can see how it looks today. Or even if it's any other type of procedure or any other type of metric we're looking at, everything is digital, everything is recorded. So unbelievable ongoing care that we're able to provide with these notes that are entered in a live basis where you can actually easily flip from patient to patient as you're doing the rounding. Um, there's a live video stream that actually connects the physician to the patient and the nursing staff, but not only that, it's actually multi-video capable. So there are times when we need to speak to the pharmacist on rounds, and instead of us having to page the pharmacist like you would do in any other hospital, we just ask the pharmacist to join the video chat, and the pharmacist drops into the video chat from another part of the hospital, and we have live video conferencing with the pharmacist during the rounds. Sometimes we need help from people that aren't in the hospital. Anybody remotely can log into the system who is a staff person in this hospital and log on and join the video conference. So it actually provides incredible collaboration between the physicians, between the nursing staff, between the pharmacy staff, and everybody on the floor. Not only that, we have a back-end messaging system that's built in. So at any point in time, you can send a broadcast message to all of the staff on the floor, or you can have a direct messaging chat with any of the staff or a group chat with people on the staff. So, um, you know, there have been times where we've had patients where, you know, we're trying to figure out what do we do for this patient to get them discharged. And we can start a multi-person group message between myself, between the nursing staff, between the occupational therapist and the physiotherapist. And all of these things that would have taken forever to figure out uh, in the physical world with pages going back and forth and people rounding and making notes, we solve in a multi-person instant messaging chat in the back end. So, in many respects, you know, a lot of people say, is the care as good in a virtual platform? In many respects, it's better because we have all of this extra communication, all of this extra documentation. So that's what it looks like for the patient. That's actually me doing rounds. Um, so the patient uh, would be lying in their bed and they would see this card come in and they would see the doctor on the big screen. Um, and typically it's a nice friendly chat. We do get the nurses to facilitate examination maneuvers. So a lot of the time we'll ask the nurses to do basic things like listen to lungs, listen to hearts, feel abdomens, get patients up and walking for us. We also work with digital peripherals. So we integrate with digital stethoscopes that can make live recordings of hearts and lungs and other things. So, you know, where it's interesting, we can actually even record heart and lung sound. So again, if we're trying to follow a murmur on a heart, we can make recordings of that to see does the murmur sound different today versus yesterday. If we're trying to see does the lung sound more clear, or there are fewer wheezes, fewer crackles, we can have a recording of the lungs from yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and we can see how that changes. So all of these are things that, again, in the physical world can be quite difficult to do, but in this system, very, very easy to follow. So what does this mean um, for rural hospitals? You know, why did we do this? And so our goal for this wasn't just to keep the Prince Edward Island Hospital open. You know, we were trying to make a proof of concept here that we could apply to other hospitals that have the same struggles across the country. So this is just an example. So when we look at Prince Edward Island, um, you know, they've got, a, I think they've got about five or six hospitals across the province. But we just said, you know, for example, here's three, pro three hospitals across the province. And even though Prince Edward Island is a small province, the drives are actually quite long. There's about a two-hour drive between each of these places. So 
you've got three hospitals that actually aren't quite large enough to attract a full-time staff person. And so this is why they have struggled over time to actually keep these hospitals staffed. And so you would have a choice of saying, you know, we're either going to find somebody who's willing to work part-time, which they can't do, or ask one person to drop in on one hospital, drive two hours and drop in on another hospital, drive two hours and drop in another, and obviously nobody wants to do that. Um, what we can do with virtual is we can do a number of different things. So we can staff these three hospitals with physicians from across the country. So we can have a physician who is an emergency physician who does hospitals work, like myself, who doesn't have a shift today, and they can drop in from Ontario. Uh, they have to get a PEI license, and all of our doctors got PEI licenses to do this, but they can drop in from an urban center where they have capacity, and they can round on one of these hospitals and then go about their day in the afternoon. Um, where you're dealing with much smaller hospitals, so especially when we think about the tiny rural hospitals, ones that maybe have five beds, um, and it doesn't make sense for them to recruit a full-time doctor into that community to round on five patients, but it does make sense for a doctor in downtown Toronto who's got a day off to round on four different five-bed hospitals in one day. So we can have a system where that doctor logs in and rounds on four hospitals, and we actually have an efficiency of staffing that we're not able to have happen in the physical world with the way that we have people traveling to remote locations. And especially for very far remote locations, when we're talking about the far north, a system like this just makes sense. So this isn't just helpful for rural hospitals. There's a number of settings um, in which this certainly helps urban hospitals as well. So uh, we've designed our system to be really helpful for inpatient care in general. So. Um, I'm going to talk about a few different use cases that are, are really near and dear to our hearts and, and use cases that I think most people working in a hospital setting have encountered. So um, on-call for specialists, especially the specialists that are not in-house, is always a challenge. So um, I can tell you working in the hospital, I've seen countless occasions where, you know, for instance, if you think of a specialty like ear, nose, and throat, where they're not in the hospital overnight. And you have that ear, nose, and throat patient at 2 in the morning that the nurse is worried about. And in the current setting, um, you know, here in Mount Sinai Hospital or at any other hospital in Toronto, the nurse gets worried and they put a page out to the doctor and they wait for the doctor to call back. And at some point in time, they get a call back from the doctor and the nurse tries to describe the scenario. And the doctor hums and haws and tries to figure out, do I need to come in? Is this something that I need to be physically there for? Can this wait until the morning? And so sometimes the doctor will eventually decide to come in. And when they do come in and see the patient, you know, and it's now a two-hour delay from paging and making the decision, either they say, whoa, I didn't really need to be here or, whoa, this is really urgent and I should have come in much sooner. Or they decide not to come in and they come in the next morning and they see the patient and they say, wow, I should have come in. And maybe it's a clinical catastrophe by the time they come in because it's too late. And there is a crisis that would have been averted had the doctor known that things were as bad as they were and coming in the middle of the night. So with so something like this, you actually don't have to have a lot of that judgment. So every service where your doctors are at home overnight on call becomes a video service. It's very easy to have your patient list that's on the virtual system. It's very easy to wheel the cart over when the nursing staff says, I'm worried to wheel the cart over and get that patient on video and have the doctor see them directly on video. And we can integrate with peripherals. I mean, there's, you know, there's scopes that can integrate with our system. You know, there's otoscopes, there's stethoscopes, and, and all number of things that we can work for different specialty services where they can actually get specialized examination performed for any number of types of patients. Um, this eliminates a lot of the stress for on-call. It makes on-call safer, more effective, faster. The other thing that's really important, and I think near and dear to almost everybody in the healthcare system's heart, is trying to manage down length of stay. And all of us, when we're trying to figure out a hospital discharge, one of the struggles is how do we get multiple different services to work together? So we struggle to get OT on board and PT on board and to talk to each other and to talk to nursing. And maybe there's three different specialty physicians that are in on the case. So you know there may be a general medicine physician. There could be a hematologist and an infectious disease person. You know We have very complex patients in our hospitals. And sometimes you need six different physicians to come together to figure it out. So, there's two scenarios that unfold in the hospitals that I've worked in. One is 
we go endlessly back and forth, paging people, getting them to do consults, writing notes, and eventually somehow we land on, on a discharge plan. Or we try to organize a physical case conference. And again, that takes a long time to get because everybody's schedules are very busy. And maybe a week later, we manage to find that case conference where we can get everybody in a room and we can plan out that discharge. So none of this has to happen with a system like ours. So there's two ways that we can get that case solved. So one is we open up a group chat in our back end and we invite all of those six people that matter for the discharge. We invite the internal medicine doctor, we invite the lead nurse, we invite the occupational therapist, et cetera, to the chat. And they chat it out and they figure out the discharge plan. And we've done this in the PEI hospital already. And we can tell you that discharge planning that used to take days is usually done in about half an hour once they're all chatting in that room. Uh, we can also do a multi-staff person video chat. So rather than trying to get everybody physically in a room where we can get people available for a video chat, we just invite everybody into the video chat and we have a four-person video chat right away where we can solve what the issue is for the patient. Needless to say, the outcome is that discharge occurs faster and it occurs more effectively and there aren't things that are missed the way that, that it's missed often in the current system. Finally, the last use case is um, efficient communication. So most hospitals, unfortunately, still rely on paging as a primary means of communication. So um, I was working in the emergency room uh, about a week ago in my hospital, and I needed uh, a patient scene uh, by our gynecology service. And so I paged, and they didn't call back, and I went to see another patient. By the time they called back, I was suturing in a room, didn't answer the call because I missed it. And then I paged again, and half an hour later, eventually they maybe called back. And by the time I actually spoke to gynecology, it was about an hour after my original page because of this telephone tag. And I think, again, most people working in a hospital are familiar with this telephone tag of communications. It is absolutely broken the way that we communicate with each other, the way the nurses communicate with the physicians, the way the nurses even communicate with the x-ray tech. I can, I've seen numerous occasions in my emergency department where nobody can find the x-ray tech and find out what the delay is in terms of getting an x-ray done from eMERGE. So all of this disappears in a system like this because everybody has an account on the system. We have built-in uh, notifications, just like when you get a text message on your iPhone and you have a text message waiting. If you get a message on Maple, you'll just tap that notification on your phone and go to that message. So what we find is we're not using paging anymore on Maple. We're having instant message communications directly. So when I need to actually refer a patient to the gynecologist, I just instant message the gynecologist on Maple and they can see that message. And obviously if they're doing a delivery, they're not gonna reply right away, but I don't have to worry about getting them on the phone to actually speak to them, to know that they've heard what I have to say, to know that I have a patient that I'm worried about. So this dramatically speeds up the communication between all of the professionals in a hospital, which is a huge, huge pain point for every hospital that I've ever worked in. So, this is a little bit of a fast forward, um, but this is kind of where we want to go with this. So, you know, we have this idea that we'd love to have a platform like ours uh, helping support rural hospitals across the country. We'd like to keep them open. We don't want them closing because they don't have doctors. We also think that there's a huge use case for urban hospitals, you know, for all of the things that we've spoken about. So the, the opportunity to have more effective rounds, the opportunity to have more effective communication. Um, but what's really neat about our system is, you know, we already have a primary care service across the country. And if you're a patient, in a hospital setting on Maple. Well, when you're discharged, you don't have to, but you have the option to become a Maple patient in our primary care setting as well. And what's really neat about our system is record sharing. So we've never had a system before where when you were discharged from hospital and you needed to see somebody a few days later, where that doctor you were seeing a few days later can see all of your hospital records from before. With this system, it's possible. So you go from being a hospital patient to a patient in the community. If you want to re receive virtual care, primary care in the community on Maple, you will be a patient both from the hospital and Maple. And if you need to go back to the hospital after that, well, guess what? The admitting physician in the hospital can see all of your primary care records on Maple. So I talked at the very beginning about Kaiser Permanente, this incredible integrated system of virtual care where you have virtual care records from your hospital stays, from your clinic visits, from everything else. 
this is what we're trying to go towards. It's not a small task, but the way that we said that we could get there is baby steps. We built this primary care service first. Uh, by, by good luck, we built this hospital service second. And the third thing is to make them work together. We think that we can get to this integrated medical experience with shared records, something that, you know, it isn't Kaiser Permanente, it's not one organization owning everything, but something that has the same net effect. We think that we can get there. The other thing that I like to think about is integrations with personal diagnostics and wearables. So the things that are available out in the community are getting more and more sophisticated. The new Apple Watch can detect atrial fibrillation. They're incredibly sophisticated. Cardiac monitors, O2 sat monitors, blood pressure monitors that patients can take home and wear. There's glucometers that can integrate technologically. You name it, it's out there. And so I think about the number of patients that I have seen in hospital who we couldn't discharge because we said that patient needs to be rounded on every single day because we're worried about them getting a downturn or they need to be monitored. The only reason why we keep them in hospital is because we want them monitored and if they get worse, we need to know. So we envision a, a scenario where you actually don't have to keep somebody physically in hospital for them to remain a hospital patient, where this virtual ward and that virtual patient list where you can see each patient at a time on video, they don't have to actually be in the hospital. You can discharge those patients physically from the hospital have them go home to the home setting, have them go home with the appropriate home monitors, and a home care nurse rather than the inpatient nurse helps you to do the virtual round. So now you've got a physical round with virtual patients, but you've also got an actual virtual ward out in the community. And so what this allows us to do is dramatically improve the rates at which we can discharge patients. So huge numbers of patients who previously we would have said are not safe to discharge with just that home care nurse. Now we say because they're actually still getting rounded on every day by the physician, we still are able to do things like listen to their hearts, listen to their lungs remotely. We're still able to monitor them. All of these things dramatically change how we use our hospital space. And again, you know, when I think about our crisis, the reason why wait times are so long, and everybody knows this, is not only because primary care patients are flooding into the eMERGE, it's because our hospitals are full. So if we're able to effectively reduce the percentage of people that actually need to stay in those hospital wards, we're going to dramatically affect those numbers that we came in to start addressing, which is those wait time numbers, those access to care numbers. I think we can revolutionize the way healthcare is provided here. So. That's the future that we see. We're, we're just a few baby steps along the journey, but that's where we're hoping to go. And that's pretty much it for our journey. So thank you very, very much for, for listening. Really appreciate your time here. So we have a couple minutes for questions. Um, so are there any questions? We'll start over here. Great presentation. Um, so glad to hear about what you're doing. Uh, Zanita heard you from Accenture. So question for you. One of the things that we always hear when we start talking about telehome remote monitoring or this notion of virtual consult is the inability for the clinician to actually do the hands-on physical assessment. Was that a challenge, and how did you overcome it if it was? So it's always going to be, I think, a challenge in the early days. So I think you're going to have clinicians that have not performed virtual care before who are not experienced with virtual care, where there is a, a definite learning process to understand what you can do without your what you can do without your hands and what you can't do without your hands. And so you have to actually figure out what are the things that require um, physical examination movers where you put a hand and figure out what you can actually substitute for. So one of the things that we do at Maple, and this has been really helpful with all of our experience over the years, is we train our physicians, number one, how to provide virtual care, and we give them lots of experience in doing it and lots of support while they do it. So you never want to drop somebody into a telehome care situation who's never provided virtual care before, because again, that's going to be a very scary, panicky situation. All of our physicians doing this have done a lot of this. But 
you know, what we talk about is that with the right support, so the right monitoring, the right peripheral examination devices, most of that physical exam can actually be done in the virtual environment. So, you know, there's good evidence to say that even like abdominal examination that is done by a third party or done self-examination by a patient is actually as accurate at detecting surgical issues as a physician's examination when it's done properly and guided through by a physician who knows how to guide the patient through it. Um, there's much research to show that this can be done really effectively. And so when we actually start to look at system by system, you know, what do you actually need that hands-on physical examination for? There's really not a lot. So, you know, derm, you can do a great job uh, just examining the skin visually with a high-definition camera. Respiratory exam, we have digital stethoscopes, and we can observe how the person's breathing. We can observe what their airway is like. We can observe their respiratory status. Monitors are really helpful for that as well. Uh, orthopedic examinations, we can't do hands-on, but we can do facilitated exams. And so when I can look at a joint and see, you know, is it swollen? Is it red? How is it moving? How is the person ambulating? What's their range of motion? All of these things are about 90% of the orthopedic exams. You can get a very effective examination. And I could go on and on about every single specialty, how if you know how to do it, most of that examination actually doesn't require you to touch the patient. We just touch the patient because that's what we're used to doing. So the, the long answer is it requires some, some experience. It requires some training. But once you actually put that in place and your physicians get comfortable, we found that that's actually not nearly as much of an obstacle as most people would think. Hello, could you talk a little bit about your funding model? For instance, in the, the Western Hospital and PEI, are you paid for fee-for-service basis? Are you paid for like a, a flat fee by the province? And also, can you talk a little bit about what people pay, individuals who want to use your service, so what are they paying? How is that set up? Mm -hmm. Uh, so the funding model of Western Hospital is they're paying us a flat fee for the rounding per day, which is what their arrangement was for the physicians before. So for in-person rounding, what they basically said is there are X dollars set aside for the inpatient rounding experience every day. They do have fee-for-service billings, but what they also understood is they didn't have enough patients to actually get the fee-for-service billings high enough to motivate physicians. So what they did, I think I'm doing funny things with the mic, but what they did is they basically said, we do a top-up. We top up to a certain level to make sure that there's enough to motivate the physician. So we basically said to them, whatever you were paying the physical physicians with the top-up, pay us the same amount. Uh, the funding model for the primary care visits in the community, um, there's no funding whatsoever. So the Ontario government is very specific. They say, uh, unless your virtual visit occurs on the OTAN network, this is totally uninsured. Don't even try to bill us. Don't talk to us about this. We hope that will change in the future. But for now, we have to charge privately. This is an uninsured service, just like laser eye surgery. So we've tried to keep the fees as low as possible, what we can charge in terms of you know allowing the doctors to provide the care. So we have uh, visits that are based on time of day. So we charge $49 for a visit that's during the daytime, and that's from 7 a.m. to midnight, Monday to Friday. We charge $99 overnight from midnight to 7 a.m. because it's really hard to get doctors to work overnight. We have to pay them a little bit more and then there's a level that's between that for the weekend so again a little harder to get doctors working Saturday and Sunday so we charge $79 on a weekend uh, good morning John Sinclair with Novari Health um, I share your enthusiasm I applaud it um, for virtual care uh, it's existed in Ontario through OTN and you're right it's going to expand we're also following what's happening in the USA, so completely share your, your uh, vision of the future, um, leveraging virtual care. It is coming, and it'll be here in a big way. Uh, instead of asking a question, though, I think I'm just going to build on what you said earlier about what's happening in the province of Ontario. I don't think it's widely known, but um, in much of the GTA now, there is uh, leveraging, uh, through OTN, leveraging our enabling technology, there is the ability for uh, patients to see their primary care provider, their GP, 
through the public health care system for those physicians that are registering their patients. So this is coming. It's coming faster than I think most people know. It's not widely known. But this, this is underway. And we're going to see it in the next months and year or two, uh, I think, uh, from, uh, from every corner of the province. So it is coming. OTN is, is, um, is very aggressive in this area of, uh, with the Ministry of Health. Everyone's, everyone's focusing on virtual care. And we're going to see it expanded uh, through the public health care system. So thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, I'm Laurie Jenkins. I'm a patient advocate. I was just wondering, your platform allows for a lot of multidisciplinary uh, participation in your rounds, your virtual rounds. Do family members or friends ever come in too? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've 100% done case conferences where it'll be the nursing staff, the physician, the OT and the PT, and potentially a family member joining in. So again, one of our most important um, philosophies here is that we want to enable better communication among all the stakeholders for that patient. And as you know, some of the toughest stakeholders usually are the family members. So we have to make them be able to be part of it. Thanks. Evan Props from SickKids. Um, my question is, uh, currently we just implemented Epic as a, uh, at, uh, at SickKids hundreds of millions of dollars. I understand UHN is now talking about billions of dollars to implement uh, either Epic or Cerner. Your platform seems to, uh, so basically, I mean, Epic has about 1% of the capability of what your platform can do. Um, and, and we're struggling a lot with that. Um, so my question is how long, and, and ultimately, we would have all hospitals integrated on the same system because we try and uh, graduate people when they're 18 and then all of a sudden all their files are lost and, and uh, it's difficult and they can't be continued. Um, you have to recreate everything. So my question is how long would it take to um, reach, to scale up, to reach that capacity to actually, um, you know, support UHN, uh, other hospitals within Ontario? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for the question. And, and I think that our price is probably 1% of the price of Epic. So, so, so I, I think that sounds like a good value. But, you know, I think in terms of scale up, our system is built to scale up for large hospitals right away with the existing functionality. So uh, it's actually built to support a, a hospital with multiple floors, multiple wards. So you could actually put in an entire hospital with multiple units of care. Um, in terms of some of the functionality that Epic has, there are things that you know would be modularized add-ons to our system. So if somebody said we just want to replace our Epic or Cerner, you know we would have to add on things like your lab work module and your DI module. Um, for places like Sick Kids, where you know you've just invested hundreds of millions in an Epic system, it may make a little bit more sense rather than contemplating replacing the Epic system with ours. What you might want to do is just do an integration. So you know our system is built to fully integrate with EMRs. And so where there was a willingness on the part of the hospital to do an integration where the data would just be replicated from Epic to us, uh, that would be probably the right way to go. And we could layer a system like ours on top of that as soon as that integration was done very, very quickly. We have time for uh, one more question. Any more questions? Um, speaking to the virtual elements of your platform, do you have a cybersecurity strategy in place? And if so, what are the focal points? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. So data security is one of the most important um, topics of mind to everybody out in the community and especially to a company like ours. So 
Um, we absolutely have a security uh, strategy. So our system, first of all, exists on cloud-based servers. Uh, we don't have our own servers that are subject to attack. They're all Canadian servers. Um, they're hosted on Amazon Web Services Canada, which is one of the most secure data servers out there. Um, everything is fully encrypted. So fully encrypted at rest, fully encrypted on your device. So even were somebody to be able to ex somehow intercept the data in transit, just like with your banking information, they would get a bunch of gibberish. There would be nothing intelligible that they could get unless they had somehow stolen the encryption key. Um, we use multiple techniques in terms of you know, hacking attacks that are done on us, penetration testing, all of the techniques that most major companies do to make sure that everything is secure. Um, we require strong passwords on the part of everybody providing care. We utilize two-factor authentication um, as a requirement for our providers. So for those of you that don't know what two-factor authentication is, that's that system where when you log in, you get a text message to your phone with a code before you can go further. So that way, if somehow you decided to um, you know, give your email to that Russian website that you logged into um, and they hacked all of your passwords, they still wouldn't be able to get into your Maple account uh, unless they had stolen your phone as well. So almost every layer of protection that, say, a bank would use are the same things that we're using. Brett, thank you very much. Thanks,